We're continuing on in our series, and this is an Advent series where we're looking through uh, what I call, the, and not just me, but others, the backbone of Scripture. As we're looking and we're anticipating Christ, this wonderful, uh, beautiful Savior who we find that, uh, as Paul says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. We're looking back to see that... <clears throat> In this glorious event that we call Christmas, that we celebrate, we see not a, a change in God, but rather the fulfillment of all that God has been um, bringing about his, over, his unfolding plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. And so we've been looking backwards, beginning with creation and looking into uh, the covenant with Noah. And now this week, we're going to be looking at the covenant with Abraham. Now, as it begins, it is um, the covenant, as you may notice, you may say, hey, why is it call him Abram? It's because as we go throughout the story, part of this covenantal work will be that God is going to change his name from Abram to Abraham. And so as we first start off in chapter 12, we're going to be looking at that. Um, and so... As we begin, let us take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the promises. We thank you, Lord, that uh, though we are a rebellious people who rebel against you, your good kingdom and your sovereign work, you in your kindness and your love, you, you reach out and you grab us and you bring us to yourself. Let us by the power of your love, surrender to that goodness, to embrace your welcome and your love and that you would change us by that love. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, obviously one of the things that we love to think about as we move into the holiday season as we talk about the time of gathering with families and so on and so forth, there's, there's a lot of things that we love to celebrate for it. But you know what? If you're an introvert like me, that also means lots of uncomfortable parties sometimes. That means sometimes going to places and events where you, you're really wondering, am I really welcomed here? All those who've gone to the in-laws for the first time, can I get an Amen. <laughs> Right? Now, you guys, most of you, you had it easy. My first time meeting my in-laws, I, I, they didn't even speak English. So, hey, you know, I had no idea. I was just, they were smiling at me, and my wife said that they were saying nice things. So, uh, they, they, to this day, 22 years later, they may have been saying rather mean things, but we'll assume that she was translating the truth to me. But it is always a certain amount of awkwardness when you're at some place and you wonder, or should I say even know, am I welcome here? Oh, I don't think people want me to be here. I remember in high school, I had this good friend who got me into a lot of trouble. And he invited me to this, this family event one time. And come to find out, it wasn't even his family. And, um, and, and I kind of knew that, but as I come in, he's like, oh, no, 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 you need to come. We'll go fishing. It'll be great. And as I got there, everybody was looking at me like, why are you here? It was weird, and it was awkward. And 30 years later, I still remember it, the awkwardness of it. I'm, I'm just one of those people. The awkwardness makes me uncomfortable within me. And of course, some of you, if you're like me, if you're, if you're raised a stepchild, maybe you're always wondering, am, am I welcome there? Now, my, my stepfamily always made me feel welcome, but there's a certain persona that comes into it that makes you question, am I welcomed in this place? And of course, as we, we grow up, we, we go into adulthood, we go to office parties, or we go to parties with our, our spouse, our spouse's friends, and we can feel that awkwardness. Am I welcomed? Some of you, you may be feeling that this morning. Maybe a friend or maybe a loved one or a family member brought you here to Grace Covenant Church, and maybe you traditionally go to a different church, or, or maybe you haven't been to church, and maybe you're not even a Christian, and so big part of you is wondering, am I welcomed here? Am I 
am, am I, is it okay? Are people looking at me wondering, why is this person here? I feel weird. This feels awkward. I mean, they do things like sing the doxology after their, their, the offering. That seems a little strange. What are they doing? Or maybe you're wondering if you're welcomed here because maybe this week wasn't a very good week for you. You did some stuff that has filled you with uttermost shame. And you're wondering, am I really welcomed here? Is it okay that I'm here? Are people judging me for being here saying, why are you here? Now, this may seem like an awkward introduction to a story about Abraham, of all people. But as we, again, what we're doing in this series is we're doing what's called biblical theology. And so we're seeing how the whole picture fits together. And when we move into the New Testament, and particularly into the book of Galatians, what you see is the Apostle Paul, that wonderful apostle to the Gentiles, to those who are outside, in other words, the covenant family of Israel, as he seeks to defend his mission, the mission of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, what you see is he appeals actually to Abraham as the justification for which by we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be here and be welcomed and know that you are not second class, you are not third class, you are loved, you are welcomed. I once, uh, at, a, at a previous church, there was a person uh, who was a rather, you know, a very bubbly, very uh, quirky person, great personality, right? And so uh, that's what you say for somebody who's a little strange, right? But no, no, she was, she was very kind. Uh, I'm just joking. But she had this T-shirt, and she, she didn't mean it. She was not trying to teach theology by this T-shirt. She wasn't a heretic. It was just a cute T-shirt. But this T-shirt said, God loves you, but I'm his favorite, right? <laughs> and, and, and so, and, and that's cute, and that makes us laugh. But the truth of the matter is, you can know that God doesn't have a hierarchy of favorites. But you can't say, I'm less loved. There is a love that is here to meet you this morning that is so good and so overwhelming and so welcoming that the very act of that love and receiving it will change your life. Genesis chapter 12. Now, Genesis chapter 12, it's important, and this may seem rather obvious, but it's something that we forget a lot of times. You see, Genesis chapter 12 is after Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Now, most of you understand. You say, yeah, okay, I know how to count. But we often take the scriptures outside of that and see, what if what's happened? If we remember last week, we saw the, the great judgment that came to us in the flood, and we saw Noah, and we saw all that was around it. We saw that Noah was, in fact, what we saw as the second Adam that was taking place. And it was the second Adam that we saw right off the bat failed. And just like Adam, we saw in the failing of his sin, what it ended up bringing was sinfulness that led to nakedness and shame. And very quickly, we saw that though that God had reinstated the blessing, we immediately once again begin to see the return of the curse. And so the son is cursed. And then what follows it in chapters 10 and 11 is the indictment that humanity had not changed. And so you see the table of the nations in chapter 10, but which really leads up to uh, when we ask that, well, how did the nations fracture like that? Well, that's explained in Genesis chapter 11, when we see that humanity rebelled against God's good rule and tried to form a government based on their own power based on their own might, and try to build this tower that would fit very well with our modern-day uh, humanistic mindset. And God confused their language. And we see, once again, we're beginning to ask, where is the hope for humanity? 
And so there becomes this genealogy that meets us. And eventually we come to this genealogy where we were encountered with this man by the name of Abram. And in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai. She's not yet Sarah. That's going to come later. Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan, where they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem and to the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And with Bethel was the west and to the eye and to this east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on still towards the Negev. Now, as we look at this, there's a few things that is important for us to understand. One of the first things as we see is what we find is Abram is called from a place of pure, unfiltered grace. You see, if we were to look forward, backwards, we can see that he is a descendant of those who were hostile to God. In fact, the book of Joshua makes it explicitly clear that Abram came from a family that were worshiping other gods. They were pagans. So why on earth did God choose Abram? And there's only one answer that the biblical story allows us, and that is grace. Only one answer. It wasn't because of anything that Abram did. It wasn't because he looked at him and said, Wow, that guy's pretty cool. I think I'll make a covenant with him. No, it is just an act of unmerited, pure grace. And so he chose him. Now, certainly we're going to see that Abram believed God, but that was hardly a pure faith. That was hardly a faith that was unwavering. In fact, as we, if we were to continue on, we would see that Abraham makes a lot of mistakes and actually shows that he doesn't trust God in a lot of areas and a lot of places of his life. And certainly as we look at his descendants, we see that these are descendants that, according to the Bible, are a stiff-necked people. So it's not like he looked forward and says, you know what, Abram's a lot of trouble, but his descendants are going to be pretty good chaps. No, 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 no. His whole choice of them is a display of his unmerited grace and favor. And so we see that right off the bat. Right off the bat that we see it is about nothing but God's grace. Now, however, there's something extraordinarily important. And it's, it goes to the very call of what I just said early in the opening. And it's easy for us to miss it and all the, that's going on. But what we see is something that's incredibly radical. Because keep in mind what had just taken place. All the nations were cursed. In Babel, they're spread out. They were descended. They were disbanded. And we see God is choosing to enter into this new relationship with this individual, this individual who is Abram. And as we look, though, what we see that's going to come about through this relationship is this. I'm going to bless you. Keep that in mind. Now, where have we seen that word blessed? Think about that for a moment. As we're going through, it's easy to miss. Where have we been seeing God calling and saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. 
when we've looked at this, this series of the covenants. But notice, so why is he blessing you? So that you will be a blessing. So in other words, the blessing doesn't just end in saying, you know what, I'm just going to pour all of my love and my favor into you and you alone. I'm blessing you for a purpose, so that you will be a blessing. And then ultimately, well, what is that blessing? What is this, what's the extent? That's somewhat vague. Well, he, he expands on it. He says, so that in you, in you, Abram, what? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, what did we just see? We just saw all the families of the earth were cursed. We saw that they were disbanded. The hope for all the earth, it seems like, is, is lost. But yet what we see that is put into place right here is a plan of redemption. It begins with Abram, but it won't unfold. It won't reach its, its full realization in just one person or even in one family. But its end goal is all the nations of the world. In other words, when we look at the Old Testament, it, doesn't, it isn't just about God fulfilling his promises to the nation of Israel. That's not its, its, its end goal. Its end goal is all the nations of the world. And what we see there is a promise of a kingdom that is going to come about through covenant. You see, one of the things that you see here that stands out is that he says, in you, I'm going to create a nation. Now, that's somewhat unusual because what we see, typically when God refers to the nation of Israel, he uses a different word. He uses the Hebrew word there, goy. And that's, that's certainly a legitimate word for the nations, but it's somewhat too formal because often in his covenant relationship with Israel, he refers to them as his children, as their family. It's a much more familiar term that he uses with them. And so why is it that he uses this, this, this structure goy here? Well, we, once again, we get the answer in understanding what has just taken place from Babel. You see, what he's saying is through you, I'm going to create a kingdom. This organized, because this is the, the, the Hebrew word goy has a stronger sense of an organized, structured kingdom. And so what he's saying, then he refers to all the other places as families as mispaha. Am I pronouncing that right? Absolutely not. Now, as we, as we move forward, that's the idea. And what he's trying to say here is what I'm going to produce in you is something, is a kingdom that will outshadow all the rest of the other kingdoms that are going to come. This kingdom that will come and will bless the entire nations. This is a kingdom promise, as, as, as uh, two scholars said, a kingdom through covenant, an everlasting kingdom, whereas the kingdom that led to Babel folded, this is going to be a different kind of kingdom, one that isn't come through human effort, but rather through the promises and the faithfulness of God. So as we go back and we are to look then, what you see is God in Abram is once again bringing about a new Adam. And so we see, what did I highlight a while ago? That, that call, I'm going to bless you. That's pointing back to the original blessing of Adam as one who is made in the image of God and even Noah. And God blessed them and told them to go out and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? There's all these images of blessing. Now, here's what's really interesting. In these first few verses... And the call to Abraham in this original call, the word blessing is used five times. Five times. Now, what was pointed out by Old Testament scholar Peter Gentry is this. If you were to go back and look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis of what we've been talking, the word curses has been used five times. What we see is a plan of redemption through which he will undo all of the curses that has come from human rebellion through this blessing that he is going to bring about through Abraham. And so what we see is God has called Abram. He says, I'm going to do this. This is due through my power that I'm going to bring about this covenant. 
and he's bringing them into, yet again, a land. He's saying, okay, so you see kind of these echoes of Eden where he's saying, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be my person. And we're going we're to see how this gets even more highlighted as the covenant expands in chapters 15 and 17. But he's saying, I have a special place for you in which you will serve as my priest. Echoes of Eden and a foreshadowing of what is to come. So we move forward into Genesis chapter 15. And so Abraham has followed him. He obeyed the voice of the Lord. He came into this new land. And ultimately what we see is there's a lot that has happened. There was this big fight that took place in which you saw all these nations in Cana came and fought these other nations. And, and what happened in the midst of it is these other nations that lost were Sodom and Gomorrah. And his, his nephew Lot, who we saw had come with him, was taken. Now, so Abraham leads kind of a rescue mission and goes and, and, and defeats these people. And he gets all the spoils that were taken from Sodom and Gomorrah. And he frees his son Lot. And as they come back to him, the, the people, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah say, Hey, you know what? You can keep all the treasure. Just give us the people. And, Adam, and, and Abram says, No, I'm not going to be made rich. This who I am and what my future holds isn't going to come. It's not going to come from anybody saying, you made me rich. Rather, it's going to come from God. And so in response to that, God says this. He says, these are the, in verse 15, after these things, that's what I just described, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, okay, so he's saying, hey, Abram, you're right. You get this. You're understanding what I'm doing, what I've called you to do. But Abram has questions. He's got concerns. And so he says this. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look towards the heaven and towards the number of stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And listen, and this is an extraordinarily important verse for all of the Bible. This is referring to Abram. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So in other words, in the midst of this promise, Abram believed him and God counted his belief as righteousness. Now, you can't, give just from this verse a full-orbed uh, biblical theology of justification by faith, but is that very foundation by which it becomes established of justification by faith, that we are made right with God on the basis of faith alone and trusting in him and his promises. And he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur and Chaldees to give you to this land that you possess. Now, God said, I'm going to make you a covenant. I'm going to do all of these things for you. We've already saw that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But that doesn't mean he didn't have questions. He didn't have fears. And notice what he does. Now, keep in mind, he comes from a pagan family. He doesn't have the scriptures here. And so he is wondering, how can I know for sure? How can I know for sure that you're going to be faithful to this promise? How do I know that I'm not being tricked here? And so he verse... He takes his concern to God, and the Lord God is able to handle his questions, his fear. 
You know, you know what the most numbered command in Scripture is by God to his people? Fear not. Fear not. Why is that the most common command? Because that's what we do the most. We fear. We fear. We wonder. We doubt. We, we have concerns. And so he says this, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And so what God's going to do next is very strange to us here in the year 2023. But this was a known way of communicating a covenant in this time. And he said, and so what he's going to do, I'm just going to describe it. He, he asked him to bring all of this ceremonial meat there and to cut them in half. And here's how the covenant of that day would, would stand. You would cut these, these, all these animals in half. And then you spread the carcasses on each side. Now, what are you going to have? Most of us, we don't fully grasp this because the way we go get our meat is we run to Walmart and we pick up some nice ground chuck and we come home and we cook it and there's no blood, no, no fuss, no mess, right? Well, these animals were just cut fresh right there in half. So what you're going to have is an absolute bloody mess. And the way you initiated this covenant in this time is you had both parties would walk down the middle of that, those two, the, the, uh, the carcasses on each side. So you're walking in and all this blood. It's a fairly gruesome sight, to be honest with you. There's no need to romanticize it. It's gruesome. And what God does, and so what it is, is as each party goes in and says, basically, if I break my side of the covenant... I'm saying, may I be like these animals? That's pretty strict. That's a pretty firm promise. I mean, I love you guys. I want you to always know that you can trust me and that I'm, I'm going to be true to my word, but I'm going to let you down. So you know what? I'm not going to make that promise to you. But here's what God does. So what did I just say? Both parties were supposed to move down this. But here's what happened. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and a great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and there will be servants there. What is he referring to? He's, he's referring to their, their time in, in the Exodus as they'll be slaves in Egypt. And they'll be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between their, these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river of the river Euphrates, and to the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Raphaim and the Amorites and the Canaanites. And the... You get the picture, right? All of this is going to be theirs. But notice what happened. He caused Abram to go into a deep sleep. And, and though that may seem a little bit odd, that, that smoking pot and that torch, that was a representation of God's presence. So what happened? God walked down in the middle of that, but he wouldn't let Abram. So in other words, he's saying, this covenant is only going to be fulfilled by my faithfulness, not yours. You see, if I'm being honest with you, you know one of the reasons I'm not going to do that kind of a promise with you is because, isn't because I don't necessarily trust a lot of you guys. I don't trust myself. I know I'm a pretty messed up individual. And if I was asking God, how can I know that for certain? That would be one of my questions. How do you know me or some of my bonehead kids aren't going to mess this up? I love you, my kids. <laughs> but 
But God says, here's how you can know. Because it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on me. I'm going to take the curses upon myself to ensure that they are fulfilled within there. So how can we know? God takes upon himself all the responsibilities to bring about the promises. And of course, there's a foreshadowing of Christ as well, that he himself would take on the punishment of the curses of the sin of the nations upon himself in his death, a gory, bloody death. But that's not the end. What we see is Abram still struggles, and so he and his wife, they come up, so they concoct this plan because they're saying, you know what, we're really old. And while we believe God, it certainly seems like we're going to have to help him out with this. And so let's, let's do this plan where we have this child through this concubine, and it'll be a surrogate thing, and so we'll still be able to work it out this way. But God's not having that. He's, he's not going to have any form of babble where we try to produce something through ourselves. So he comes to him again in chapter 17 to reaffirm this covenant. And when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. This is the Hebrew word El Shaddai. And this is the first time in scriptures we encounter that word El Shaddai. That's an important word because it, it, it literally means it is um, the God who is about to intervene powerfully is a, is a term of great power. He's about to do something grand, impossible, mighty. Walk before me, he's telling to walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into the nations, and the king shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and you throughout their generations for everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you, and I will give to you your offspring after the land of your sojourners and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, I, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generation. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised of the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with, bought with your money from the foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, as I already said, what we see here is he begins this by saying, I am El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. I'm about to do something big. Now, Abram is probably thinking at this point that big things already happened. I've got Ishmael. But he says, no, there's something even bigger in place that is going in. And he tells him, he goes, walk before me. Now, if you're to study and you're to look at that phrase in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, uh, according to Old Testament scholar Peter Gentry, what you see is that is referring to an emissary. That is what an emissary does or a diplomat that does. He's saying, you are going to be my emissary, my diplomat in this covenant relationship. And so once again, we see that foreshadow or that echo of Adam, that image of God relationship that God is calling Abraham to be and to do. And he says, to be blameless, to be whole, 
without blemish, wholehearted within there. And so what you see then, and he also says, I'm going to give you the sign of circumcision that is there. Now, as we look at the sign of circumcision, a lot of us, we look at it and then we say, hey, you know, that seems a little strange. What is this sign? And so just as we saw that there was the sign of the bow uh, in the Noahic covenant, he wants there to be another sign for this Abrahamic covenant. Now, circumcision in and of itself was not unique to the people of Israel. There was, there's, there's, circumcision that took place in the, in the ancient Near East. But the way God called them to apply the circumcision was actually very unique. Because you see, that, and this helps us understand what's taking place here, as you look in the ancient Near East, particularly in Egypt, the, main, the people who were circumcised were those who were priests. And it was a sign of their complete and utter do- devotion to the worship of God. But it was only priests. It wasn't the whole people. And that was a sign of their priesthood, of their total devotion to God. The second thing is, in circumcision, it wasn't, <clears throat> um, it wasn't uh, that took place in an infant. It was part of a, a manhood, an in, initiation rite that took place uh, later on in life. And the third thing that, that is different is it was the whole foreskin. And so there's a totality, a wholeness, and even a promise of separation that takes place within that. Now, if we were to put all that together, what is God saying in the sign of circumcision? He's saying not just a select few of you are going to be my priest, but the entire nation is going to be my priest, my intercessory to the nations, to the people. You, your entire family, all that is you, you are going to be my people, my totally separate whole people who are set apart for my purposes and for the worship and the knowledge of who I am to represent me before the nations. Secondly, he says, this isn't going to be initiation, right? This happens at birth. Your whole life, your whole promises of your life is going to be for me, for everybody. And it takes place in the eighth day. What is significant about that? It's referring to new creation. It's going back to in the first six days, God created. In the seventh day, he rests. And so the eighth, just as we in Christian tradition with, with Sunday Sabbath, the eighth day was a sign of rest, is a sign of new creation within there. So the circumcision actually is still looking back and saying you are going to be a special priesthood of people before me. So if we were to go back and kind of summarize what we looked at in this relationship with with God through this covenant, we see first and foremost is a relationship of grace. It is a relationship of grace where they are blessed just as the new image bearers of God, not to say that all the rest of the people were not image bearers, but they were to take on the special blessing of God's emissaries of his in the world, but they're to do so to be a blessing into the nations. There is the promise in this covenant of descendants that they would be fruitful and they would multiply, and this is in the context of death. And so what we see is he waits, and the, the, the text makes explicit that Sarai who would now be called Sarah, her womb had moved past postmenopausal time, well, well, well beyond it. And so there's a semblance in which the Lord God Almighty, what does he symbolize? He is going to bring life in the place of death. Fourthly, there's a call for them, and they will receive a specific land and a future inheritance in which they will be priests unto the living God. And so you see, again, these echoes of Eden coming back within there. And they're called to be priests of the living God. And then finally, that God will reclaim relationship with people through the relationship with Adam. Because what you see in this, particularly in chapter 17, it's a very important word. It's easy for us to move back, but he says... In this relationship, it is an everlasting covenant to be God to you. And then he's going to expand on that. You're going to be 
that we see throughout the Old Testament is a, is a strong indication of God's covenant fidelity that his relationship with his people, I'm your God and you will be my people. That continues to build on that phrase, I will be a God to you. Even though the whole world that we've seen has rejected you, you are my covenant, has rejected me, my, you are my covenant people, you will be mine, I will be your God. And we see that glorious result that God is seeking to do in the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, when it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, we then move to Christmas. And if we move to Christmas, we move into the Gospels and the New Testament. We see the coming of the Messiah. And right off the bat, the first pages, if we were to open your Bible, the very first page of the New Testament, the very first verse of that New Testament, it says this in Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes on to the list of genealogies. What is it trying to say right off the bat? With the coming of Jesus Christ, he is the fulfillment of the promise of the seed of Abraham. This is what we're celebrating in Christmas. This was good news to the Jews. The faithfulness that was promised to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But it's not just good news for the people of Israel. For when we see his completed mission as he has died and ride on the cross, we saw how Matthew begins How does Matthew end? Go, therefore. He's talking to his disciples, those who are blessed to be his disciples, to see him, to know him. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The promises of Abraham has come in Jesus Christ. And what is the result? The gospel, the good news, this covenant relationship is to go into all nations, into all people. They are blessed so that through the promises of Abraham, all the nations will be blessed in him. And Luke, once again, we go. This is an important part of what we see when we think about Christmas. We think, think of Mary's great song, the Magnificent, and right at the heart of that in, in verses 54 and 55, Mary is crying out as she understands that something special is going on with her. And, in, and she speaks prophecy, and she says this, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He spoke to our, our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In other words, she's saying what is happening to her is in the fulfillment of Abraham. And we move on to Zechariah as he speaks and he prophesies and understands what is going on that is taking place that God is doing in this time. He says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has reigned, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. Listen, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, which ones? The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from his hand and our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. Well, just then like Matthew, how did he begin understanding the fulfillment of Jesus and the promises that he was? And he ends with what? The gospel going to all nations. Well, you got to keep in mind, Luke is two parts. And so what does he say at the end as he's finished up the telling of Jesus, as he sees this new church that is formed through the resurrection power of Jesus, we see Jesus give this commission to his disciples in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea 
and to the end of the earth. And what do we see as as the gospel goes out in Acts, Paul is in Rome, what would then be considered the utmost parts of the earth. The blessings and the promises of Abraham that through him the nations of the world will be blessed has begun. God is true and faithful to his promises. Paul saw the implications and the understanding of that. So he says this in Galatians 3, verse 7. Now then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Did you hear that? Now then it is those of faith. Just as Abraham was brought into this covenant relationship by faith, not by works, and now not even by a nationality, those who are faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So in other words, what is he saying? The gospel goes all the way back to Abraham, the plan of God. And so as he ends in chapter 27, or in chapter 3, verse 27, For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you are Christ, and then you are Abraham's offsprings, heir according to the promise. I mean that as the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from the slave, though he is the owner of everything. In other words, if you are in faith, in Christ by faith, God holds nothing back from you. Not a single moment of love. Not an ounce. Not a milligram of his mercy. We live in a world that longs for safety. And we can sometimes, in our cynical moments, we can sometimes make fun of those in our world that they're longing for safe places and to be safe within that. And sometimes we can use derogatory terms like snowflakes and all these things. But the truth is, we're all longing for that sense of safety, that sense of knowing that we're welcomed, that we're safe and we belong. But what we see in is our world that is impossible to find except in one place, in the promises of God. And the God who looked out and despite he saw a broken world that continued to want to find its own way, said, I will bring forth a people that will be mine by faith. That I'm going to love them. You can know, just as I've said, throughout the service, you are welcomed here today. Not because of who you are not because of what you've done, but because of the love and the faithfulness of God. How can I know? How can I be sure? Because of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. There's not a person in here that is more valuable to God, not a person who is less valuable. As Tim Keller loves to say, and I quote so often, this this love doesn't come to you because you're good and lovable, but because of the loveliness of Jesus. And so as Keller often says, you're more sinful than you can possibly understand. That's why you'll never find that safety, that security in the things of this world. But in Christmas and his promises is a declaration that you're more loved than you can dare to dream. This is the Christmas promise that God so loved his people 
that though they could never save themselves, he came into this world. He chose to come to save sinners, to save his children. How can I know for sure? Because when you place your faith in the living God, we have the sure promises of God, which we see are fulfilled. You can trust in them. You can believe them. When those promises of love change us, come to us, and we can receive them in all they are, they will absolutely change your life. And that is a call for us as well to understand that love that changes us doesn't just end in us. But as the church, we are called to receive this love to bask in it, to dance in it, to worship, which is all that we have been doing this morning to respond to his grace. But to be a blessing as well, to proclaim this love unto the nations. What is the love we are proclaiming as we move into this Christmas season? Is it that in which we can know that we are loved and received and accepted, that there is a love that surpasses our understanding? Or is it the love of this world that chooses who we will love and who we will not love, that will choose to find fulfillment in maybe buying love from other people, That finds, us, that finds us peace in what the world has to offer. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Won't you believe and won't you trust in this incredible love today? It doesn't mean you won't have questions or uncertainties or doubts. But it does mean that you're putting your hope and your trust in Christ and him alone. And it should be that simple. Father, we thank you for this.